It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording on Friday, February 12th, 2021. Here's a confession or a personal observation. David Hartman wrote back in 1982 in a famous essay called Auschwitz or Sinai, quote, it is a serious mistake to allow the trauma of Jewish suffering to be the exclusive frame of reference for understanding our national renaissance. Truth is one of the things that I've always loved about the Hartman Institute and drawn to since I've been here for now roughly 11 years, was the commitment to try to spend most of our time talking more about covenant than we do about crisis. That actually anti-Semitism, the Shoah, the specter of the things that will be done against us, can wind up taking up a lot of oxygen in terms of defining the Jewish communal agenda and actually exonerate us from asking the moral questions, not just of what do other people want to do to us in the world, but what do we want to do and what do we want to achieve in the world? That said, in 2021, the questions of anti-Semitism, of Holocaust denial, are not just inescapable in ways that they really have always been. They're not just the business of a number of key Jewish organizations that are focused on questions of defense, protection of Jews, combating hate. They are the news of the day. Anti-Semitism has been on the rise, as we all know, in America, certainly in Europe and around the world. Anti-Semitism is becoming a heavily partisan conversation. And so in certain ways, in spite of my eagerness or desire not to spend so much of my time talking about and thinking about it, somewhat inevitable that it becomes the critical piece of our agenda. So good news, bad news. Today, we're going to continue to focus on questions of anti-Semitism. That, I guess, is the bad news. Or I should put it differently. The existence of anti-Semitism is the bad news. The fact we're going to talk about it is not in itself bad news, but the good news is I'm excited to talk to my friend and colleague, Stacey Burdett, a longtime leader in the space of the fight against anti-Semitism, parts of her career as a senior leader at the ADL and at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, and now as an independent consultant doing a lot of work in this space, in this arena. Stacey, thank you so much for being on Identity Crisis today. Oh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Yehuda. Great. So our topic today is actually a definition of anti-Semitism, a specific definition of anti-Semitism offered by an organization called IRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. It's a working definition that is starting to become a matter of law or at least public policy here in the United States and elsewhere around the world, and therefore becoming a subject of public debate and controversy. Now, later on in the show, we'll get into the politics of why this is in the news right now and why it's so controversial. We'll also talk in greater detail about the text of the definition itself. But first, Stacey, perhaps you can help us understand the background of this definition, which has actually been in process for about 20 years. Where did it come from? What was involved in the creation of the definition? And what did it mean to address? Yeah, that's the right question. It's really important to understand the history of IRA especially while we are in, like you say, a very polarized debate about it. 
and we'll talk about who are the different groups of people who are angry at each other, you know, and making very reductionist arguments about this. But it's very, very important to remember that IRA was really a product of a period right after the Durban conference, which was a very frightening experience, not just for Jews who were there like I was, but to the whole Jewish community about how alive anti-Semitism really is, how flummoxed we can be by new forms that it takes, even though we had been talking about whether or not there's a connection between hatred of Israeli and anti-Semitism for a long time. And in 2002 or so, right around the second intifada, there was an explosion of anti-Semitic violence all across Europe, particularly in France, where so many Jews live. And the Jewish community advocates, a community that I'm part of with people all over the world, were asking the European Union to do something. And in order to do something, you have to first document where are the incidents happening, what types of incidents they are. And the Quasi-Governmental Monitoring Center on Racism and Xenophobia was called the European Union Monitoring Center. Today, it's called the Fundamental Rights Agency commissioned a report from an excellent group of scholars based in Berlin at the Berlin Technical Institute. And they did not publish the report. They were holding it back and it became clear from letters from members of Congress and other sources that were later proven that this monitoring center and European officials were not willing to release the report because it found things that at the time were very uncomfortable. And that was that in addition to anti-Semitic incidents coming from traditional right-wing extremists, Muslim immigrants, as sometimes the grandchild of the immigrant can be called in Europe, were the perpetrators. And this group of scholars that led the report also included assaults on Jews, attacks on homes and Jewish properties, where the attacker invoked anger at Israel. And they just said, we in Europe, we have to distinguish between legitimate political expression and criticism of Israel. And they also felt attacked. They said, we're not going to tolerate any insinuation that our policy toward the Middle East is driven by anti-Semitism. So the group of advocates that sat together with the European Monitoring Center officials were writing what we call the IRA definition in the middle of quite a trauma, because when government agencies don't document violence against you as hate violence, police don't respond in the same way. And we saw at the time private police security organizations being established in the Jewish community because the system wasn't working for them. So this definition was written with an express purpose of solving that problem, setting some guidelines and giving very concrete examples of when these monitors should literally not throw a report in the trash. So I think it's important to have that frame that the drafters of IRA were trying to solve a problem that I think everyone should agree was a terrible, terrible scandal. So let me flag two things in what you said, because I think they're critical. And then I want to zoom closer to the present. 
Two things that you named which are critical are, and they're oftentimes not visible in the American Jewish conversation about anti-Semitism. Number one is that this originates in a European problem. And in fact, I want to get to this a little bit later, but Europe is a little bit of the defining line in how people think about anti-Semitism, because between right and left, European presentations of anti-Semitism, as you indicated, which sometimes come from Muslim sources, are kind of inconvenient to left-wing definitions of anti-Semitism, and they are very consistent with right-wing definitions of anti-Semitism. But the European context feels really critical to me as the origin for where this came from. And the second thing that you identified, which is really interesting to me, is that in the contemporary partisan fight about anti-Semitism, right-wing versus left-wing, what you're basically naming is that at the time when this originated, everybody agreed that anti-Semitism had been principally seen in right-wing expressions, and what they were seeing was something new as not consistent with right-wing white nationalism and white supremacy and something quite different. Is that accurate? Yes, and I think there's also a sensitivity in Europe about, remember, this is after 9-11. Anti-Semitism's reemergence in Europe shocked the world and shocked all the good people. And to say that the perpetrators are this Muslim minority was politically sensitive, and I think maybe sensitive for good reasons. But when we talk about identifying how to respond to hate crime, we need to know who's committing the crimes and where they're happening and what the nature of them is. So, yes. Okay, so before we get to the question of why this is now being litigated as a definition for the American government, which has become an issue, especially under the Trump administration, Jared Kushner, uh, the Trump administration has endorsed the IRA definition, the Biden administration looks like it will if it hasn't already. Before we get to that question, let's go back a little bit and ask, what is the point of having a definition of anti-Semitism? Like, I understand a mobilization against anti-Semitism. I understand a group of state and non-state actors coming together to identify the emergence of a hatred and to look for strategies through law, through education, etc., to try to combat it. But what's at stake when we actually try to look for a definition? Because as we know, there aren't definitions for other comparable hatred. So what's going on with the need to kind of come up with a clear understanding or a definition for the general public? Well, you alluded to a big difference between anti-Semitism in the European context and here in America. And that's very relevant to what's the purpose of a definition. The story I told about police not responding to hundreds and hundreds of violent incidents against Jews for lack of an understanding or for lack of sharing the community's sensibility about what was happening to them, that's a very urgent problem because your child gets beat up and the police don't come or the police consider it an act of hooliganism. That's not a big deal, but really it's terrifying a whole community. So those monitors need a definition and a definition is important to facilitate the right response especially when you're talking about a government action, your only goal is to improve your laws if they need to be improved and implement the laws that you have well. We already outlaw discrimination and hate crime because of your sexual orientation, but police and officials need a lot of education and resources to understand transphobia. It's confusing. And anti-Semitism can be confusing just like that. But the most important thing to remember about when you're trying to introduce a definition to any official institution, 
you are not trying to diagnose the problem. You're trying to fill a gap in that government's response. And the lack of response at that time in Europe, that was particularly egregious in France. And the French government turned around after this period and partly connected to this scandal about this report that was thrown away. But in the United States, we don't have a similar experience. Yes, there's anti-Semitism coming from the left. Yes, it's coming from the right. But we don't have a corollary indifference by the government. Are there cases that need to be elevated? That's what advocates like ADL do. That's what communities should do. But we don't have the same problem that we're trying to solve for. So in the United States, the question is not only is this a European square peg that we're trying to put in a round hole? I believe it is, but it's a solution in search of a problem. It's super interesting to draw those distinctions, especially because part of the reason this is in the news is because of the question of should the United States government adopt it? Part of the controversy here is that one of the authors of the IRA definition now publicly claims that it was never intended to be a kind of legally binding tool. It was supposed to be an educational tool. This is Ken Stern. I wouldn't claim that he's trying to take his name off of it. More, he's trying to use the fact that he was part of this process to argue for it to be an educational tool. But one of the most interesting pieces of news about the IRA definition this past week, which I suspect got little play in American Jewish media, was that it was adopted by the city of Paris. The IRA definition was adopted as instructive for the city of Paris, which to your point is kind of where it was supposed to actually have relevance and resonance. And no surprise that the American Jewish opponents to the use of the IRA definition, we'll talk about why they're opposed to it, that goes unnoticed because it's like, well, who cares about the city of Paris? I'm focused here on the American story. But what you're putting in context is that's where it was supposed to matter. Paris has been the site of some of the most public and visible anti-Semitic attacks against Jews. Yeah, of course, the definition was created for use in Europe. It's still very important in a city like Paris. But the main question is adopted by the city of Paris, but adopted for what? All the countries who've adopted the definition, some of them might not be changing anything they're doing to respond to anti-Semitism. They may have checked the box. And then the other question I have about adoption is when we look even in the European theater, where countries, football teams, universities are adopting the definition, fighting adoption of the definition, they don't have the First Amendment in Europe. And even in Europe, the definition is only adopted with a strong caveat that nothing about this definition should chill free speech. Lord John Mann, the British government's advisor on anti-Semitism and a big proponent of this definition has said numerous times, this definition should never be used as a legal tool to chill free speech. The fact that it's not a legal tool is its very value. It is an educational tool. And so I hope Paris will train its police to come when someone calls, will help educate them that when an anti-Israel demonstration is in front of someone's house or a Jewish community center and not the embassy of Israel, their antenna needs to be up. 
Okay, so let's go into the definition itself, because we've been talking in broad terms about the history of this process, but I think it's critical for us to be able to understand what's actually here and what's not here. It's a surprisingly small document. It's, I don't know, a couple hundred words. The working definition says as follows, quote, anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property, towards Jewish community institutions and religious facilities. That's the whole quote. I have been in the room where people have tried to come up with mission statements. So I know the process of discernment around this word as opposed to that word. There's a couple of very loaded words in here, including perhaps most powerfully, which may be expressed as. I'd love to know a little bit more about that hedging language. And then the second part of definition, which oftentimes invites even more controversy, are the IRA contemporary examples. Now, there are a couple of examples that are listed here, like calling for, aiding, or justifying the killing or harming of Jews in the name of a radical ideology or an extremist view of religion. Got it. Right? That's kind of easy and coherent. Calling for the killing of Jews in the name of any ideological position is clear anti-Semitism or making mendacious comments about or stereotypical allegations about Jews. Got it. More controversially, down the list of the examples are accusing Jewish citizens of being more loyal to Israel, denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination by claiming that the existence of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor, or applying double standards by requiring of it, that is the Jewish people, a behavior not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. So I think part of where the issues start to emerge is in the very inclusion of these categories around Jewish statehood, Jewish self-determination, and the listing of the state of Israel in this context. So let's do a little bit of a kind of text study. What's here that's worth noticing in first the definition and then with respect to some of these examples? And what are the pressure points when it comes to the definition itself? Well, you're right about how difficult it was to negotiate this. And I think that's one of the reasons, Yehuda, that this definition is 16 years old and so many people are standing behind it because they say it's very difficult to craft a definition. This is the one we have. Good work went into it. It has value. And people who attack this definition sometimes are doing it with malign intent. Anti-Semites attack this definition, so therefore we should stand behind it. But it is a 16-year-old definition. And you asked about a perception which may be expressed as hatred. Well, anti-Semitism can be expressed as a stereotype. No one says, I hate George Soros. They say he's controlling the world. And certain perception, of course, it sounds like Miguel there. Heyman described the Jews as a certain people, but it speaks to the fact that your perception of Jews may not be the focus of hatred, but of otherness. And the examples you know, you're right. The first sentence of the definition is the Torah. The examples are the commentary, the pshat and the commentary. But for Jewish people, for our community, and for proponents of this definition, the examples are everything, and they must be adopted because the examples were the place where you told the French government that just because someone says Palestine, Palestine, and beats up a Jewish kid, that's a hate crime. It's not political speech. So the examples were everything. And it's very important to remember 
what this definition was responding to when you look at these examples. I think reflecting 16 years later, a lot of people agree that there can be better ways to write these examples. You know, maybe an accusation of dual loyalty on its own could be a pretty good indicator of anti-Semitism or denying Jews a right to self-determination. It probably would be able with some reflection to add a little bit more nuance to these examples. But I still would say they are solving a problem that leaves Jews very vulnerable, not in the United States in the same way as in Europe, but it has a purpose. This is what's so complicated is on one hand, you said the whole thing is essentially the examples. If you don't have any examples, then you have what, 150 words, even fewer, and anybody can attach any sort of commentary to those core words. I need those examples. You're willing to basically say, well, maybe we can adjust some of these examples, we can rewrite some of them. But the minute that you start engaging with revisiting the examples themselves is where you're gonna invite the exact political hostility that's merged around the definition itself. Because there will be a whole bunch of people who say, I wanna basically remove the Israel pieces from this story and others who are gonna make a counterclaim. So that's an argument for canonizing the commentary. <laughs> because the alternative is as messy as starting the process again from the beginning. I think you put your finger on a big problem. And I know a lot of proponents of the definition, and I was involved in crafting it myself. I did secretly pray it would never be translated into English because so many of the examples are about speech. You could write the ACLU's counter memo 16 years ago, and they have written memos against this definition when it's been introduced into legislation. But I think you're putting your finger on the zero-sumness of the arguments about this definition. I believe that in my own work, working on this issue and how to define anti-Semitism and how to engage this definition, it has brought me into contact with the widest range of Jewish people that I've ever spoken to, even in a 30-year career in the Jewish community. Because there are BDS supporters fighting this definition, and when some of those BDS supporters or thought leaders in that community have wanted to know what the history of the definition can teach them, I've been happy to let them know that this definition wasn't written to punish them. It wasn't written with them in mind at all. And I also have talked to people who are very faithful to this definition and some people whose view of the First Amendment isn't the same as mine or yours. And I still need to understand that they are afraid of a very serious threat. Anti-Semitism kills people. And we have a grave responsibility, not just to protect our community, but to help governments and police and officials and educators understand how to keep us safe because most of them want to. So let's play out the politics of what makes this controversial. So we've hinted a little bit at the Israel piece as a part of it, but the map has actually started to become very clear in the American Jewish communal context of who's in favor of the definition, who's opposed to the definition. In favor are 
basically the network of organizations, almost all of them under the umbrella of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations, which has advocated for this definition. A couple of other major American Jewish organizations, as I indicated, the Trump administration supported this definition. Mike Pompeo, in his kind of last gasp effort as Secretary of State, tried to turn it into a matter of State Department policy that a certain set of organizations, really based on the assumptions around Israel in this definition, would be classified by the State Department as anti-Semitic. There are a host of organizations, mostly on the political left of the American Jewish community. Americans for Peace Now has been out in front on this, as well as Trua and others, many scholars of anti-Semitism trying to argue against the actual adoption or implementation of this as policy. What else do we need to know about the mapping of this? And is this just another example of any issue that emerges in Jewish life, if it becomes associated with or thought of as being a right-wing cause, is going to wind up inviting opposition from those who define as left-wing and vice versa? And is there a version of this that could be salvaged in the context of this partisan political fight? There's absolutely a way forward and a way forward that enjoys consensus, not just among different Jews, but Republicans and Democrats. That I see very clearly. But the starting point that you have to remember is the issue of anti-Semitism in the American Jewish community. It's come back and we're still shocked by it. When you tell a friend or a colleague who's not Jewish how scared American Jews are of anti-Semitism, It's shocking to them, they're polite about it, but it's not something that they're accustomed to thinking about. And I do see the Jewish people and Jewish groups and organizations on all sides of this debate responding to their own community's fear. And that's a very, very important thing to always hold in our minds, that these are good people trying to protect their constituency against the next shooter that's going to come into their shoal. But setting that aside, but keeping it in mind, now you're talking about something that Hartman has talked about a lot, which is the toxic public space of Jewish politics. So when you put a definition of anti-Semitism out there, you then bring groups into that public response cycle. It's the Starker Olympics. You can't let anyone be more stark than you because Jews in America are afraid, you are raising money based on your credibility and being able to protect them. And that's a good thing. I'm not criticizing it. But the public dynamic sets up these purity tests. And it's like our version of virtue signaling. And on the margins of that, there are bad actors who are smearing each other and saying, you see, progressives are all the problem. Or you see, QAnon is the greatest threat to the Jewish community, and the Department of Homeland Security says so. So I believe there's a big difference between the public debate and the private debate about this definition. When you speak to people privately, whether it's in the administration or inside some of the organizations that are the most stark proponents, they will agree, yeah, I think that basically this definition and the examples are a really important education tool. We want them in the loose leaf binder of the training of every FBI agent, every investigator, everyone who reviews cases at the Department of Education, you know, on campus harassment. And people agree that it has a use, the use is educational, 
And if you look at congressional testimony, whether it's from the American Jewish Committee or all of the groups, they always say this definition is not an end in itself. It's an education tool. And the Biden administration, through a deputy assistant secretary speaking at an experts conference on anti-Semitism, said just that. And what you saw after that statement was all the Jewish organizations said, Amen, Selah, to the Biden administration. Look, they embraced our position. And so I do think there is a consensus view that this is an important tool. Some people think it could be updated, but a broad swath of Jews understand why these examples don't belong embedded in our law. You know, I had a similar experience to what you're describing when I was once at a quiet, off-the-record gathering on anti-Semitism that brought together people who both were on the kind of political left and political right. And the consequence of being on the political left and political right is not just your political views, it's what you want publicly to portray as being the main threat of anti-Semitism. Because the minute that you can characterize your political opponents as being the source of major anti-Semitism, it's actually useful for mobilizing people to your political side. So there are huge consequences for the conclusion of which anti-Semitism is worse, even as perverse as that question is. And one of the things I was taken by in this two-day off-the-record gathering was that for the purposes of the discussion, everybody was willing to set that argument aside and to say, let's just treat anti-Semitism as a global problem, which it is. Let's treat it as a problem that does not discriminate. In other words, it doesn't have its own political views. It can manifest in a whole variety of different positions and what collaborations might then be possible. But I guess part of me looks at that and says, is it realistic in our contemporary climate to be able to differentiate between the private coalition work that you're talking about, Stacey, of privately people agree that this definition is basically useful, but publicly they need to perform support for or opposition to it. Is that just a kind of old school politics in an environment when there's too much to gain from press releases and public letters to Facebook and so forth? Well, I think it's very new school politics. You know, there is a competition, like I said, for stridency. We're in a very dysfunctional relationship with our donors right now. You know, when I first started working in Jewish organizational life, I had to explain to government officials the alphabet soup of all the centrist Jewish organizations that looked like they were all doing the same thing. And I had to explain, well, this one was founded by German Jews, and this one focuses more on church state issues. But that's a conversation you would never now have because the center is where Jewish organizations go to die. No one can raise money for nuance. And there are days when the same organization might have to run far to the left one day and far to the right the other day. And we are Americans and we're caught up in the toxicity and the caustic nature of the political debate that we're in. But I think the divide, now that I'm sitting with you and I'm thinking about the mission of Hartman, I think you talked about covenant versus crisis. The divide that most often is behind some of these controversies is the difference between the universal and particular. The Jews who care very much about putting the Jewish people first, and then the Jews who are more focused on the positioning of the Jewish community with respect to its relationships. And for me, as a Jewish professional, I'm into marriages. It's like Steve Carell said in the movie, Crazy Stupid Love, I love you even when I hate you. 
and I'm in a marriage with a Jewish community. I love everybody in it, even when I hate them. And I'm also in a marriage with the American community, the civil rights community. And I love you, Women's March, for what you're trying to do, even when I hate you. And I'm in two relationships at the same time. And when you take something like a response to anti-Semitism that doesn't include other people, that amends civil rights protections for other people, gives a different kind of protection to Jews facing anti-Semitism, you're in that debate of am I for myself, am I for other people, and which one comes first? And that's the divide. Hi, my name is Sabra Waxman, and I'm the Senior Marketing Manager at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Join us February 15th through 18th for an interfaith symposium exploring questions of truth, difference, and allyship for people of all faiths. Don't miss this opportunity to learn with more than 20 top Hartman scholars and guest experts. To see the full schedule and to register, visit winter.hartman.org.il. Let's jump into BDS a little bit, because in some ways it's the heart of the matter. Although I've noticed that Jews who are on the political right, who want to make the primary concern about anti-Semitism, about BDS, sometimes a significant downplaying of forces like QAnon, forces like white nationalism and white supremacy. Usually the language I've heard them use is, this is a minor fringe phenomenon of a bunch of weirdos living in their mother's basement. It's not a global problem. I think that has died out a little bit post-January 6th and post-Charlottesville, the recognition that these are actually powerful political forces. Marjorie Taylor Greene is another good example of this. But the big anxiety really on the political left is the implicit classification of BDS as being anti-Semitic. And it goes back to that piece of the definition, which was around the application of double standards. So that's the tool by which the definition is used to claim that BDS is an anti-Semitic phenomenon because there's an implicit understanding that it applies a double standard to the state of Israel as opposed to somewhere else. And the strongest argument I've seen on the political left is, wait a second, what are Palestinians supposed to do? Does being a Palestinian, by definition, wind up positioning them as being painted as anti-Semites? That certainly seems to have happened to Rashida Tlaib, probably the most prominent Palestinian-American ever, who, by virtue of just having basically Palestinian politics, being Palestinian, can be classified as an anti-Semite. And as you indicated, there is such a difference between the European context and the American context, where we do value civil liberties, free speech, First Amendment. We have those tools at our disposal. So what's the version of this resolution, this definition, that can actually reconcile itself to expressions of antipathy towards Israel and its policies that don't wind up jeopardizing the First Amendment? Well, I think that a very large majority of Jewish people have experienced or agree that there is some nexus between extreme hatred of Israel and anti-Semitism. We've experienced how hatred of Israel is a cloak for hating Jews. It's a phenomenon that exists, and we should never forget that, just like we should never forget that QAnon thrives because anti-Semitism is part of its ideology. But what you're really getting at is an aspect of human nature. How do we name a threat and acknowledge that part of that threat comes from our ideological brothers or sisters? And that's what this is testing in all of us. 
Some people say that the definition doesn't talk about white nationalism. Well, it doesn't name it explicitly because in that living room in Vienna over some pecorino cheese and crackers, no one believed white nationalism would come back, especially to the United States. But I find these examples to cover the ideology of many of the groups that were marching on the Capitol and storming the Capitol. But the definition is more than a legal tool or more than an educational tool. We, all people, no matter what community you're in, we desperately want our pain to be recognized. And the definition is a tool for us to ask governments, not just to respond to incidents properly, but recognize we are victims too. It's counterintuitive in New York and New Jersey maybe, but we are victims and advancing this definition, it's a cry of the heart also. It's not trying to sanction other people's speech. That's not the intent. There are people using it that way. But I do think that there is a real concern that the examples include some anti-Israel speech that should be protected. And I think it's because of vagaries. Again, we could rewrite this a little more precisely, but I think whether or not that's implicit in the definition's examples, when you see a secretary of state use this definition as a basis to sanction humanitarian groups who could be branded as anti-Semitic, then you know whatever the intent is, this definition is missing the point of the exercise to just increase the response to anti-Semitism, increase reporting of anti-Semitic incidents. So the definition is how it's used. You can look at the shot and the commentary, but we now have examples of how it's being used. And Rashida Tlaib is a great example. I saw some advocacy paper from one Jewish community organization, not one of the mainstream ones that's top of mind, but when Rashida Tlaib complained about the Palestinians not getting vaccines as part of Israel's vaccination program, there was an appeal to Congress to use the IRA definition against her because she was holding Israel to a double standard. Rashida Tlaib has a right to be inaccurate. She has a right to be wrong, and she has a right to be angry and intemperate about Israel. Her grandmother was born just a couple miles from where mine was born. And I am very passionate about my grandmother's homeland. But if there's no room for Rashida Tlaib to be wrong, to be intemperate, to be unfair to Israel without being called anti-Semitic, then we as a community need to reassess the definition that we're using or the campaign around this definition that we're empowering. Wait, which one is it, Stacey? Is it reassess the definition or is it reassess the campaign? Because you've made the case for the necessity of this definition for law enforcement and for other things. And I think this is the heart of the critique. And there is a pretty common misuse. And you know what it sits on, Stacey? It sits on, you talked about we are vulnerable, but it also sits on the fact that we are powerful. So the fact that Jews, and I don't mean all Jews, because then I would 
be falling into the trap of the definition. There are Jews who have power in America, organizations, individuals, and it's not a theoretical question anymore of the weaponization of the definition or the use of it to suppress the civil liberties. And that's a testimony, not just to Jewish vulnerability, to Jewish power. So what do we do now? What do we want to have happen next? Is it really just modify this definition or is it rethink it? Well, I think this definition can be one resource. It doesn't have to be the only one. I've seen an FBI training manual. It doesn't have one piece of paper in it. It is added to all the time. But the most important thing is to use this definition for its intended purpose to sensitize law enforcement and officials. I'm not aware that there's a big problem in the United States You know, my experience is when you call the police or the FBI, they take it pretty seriously. But this definition can help raise awareness for officials. The question that you raised is the fact that when it comes to empowerment, American Jews, we have an embarrassment of riches. You know, my grandparents on both sides, we grew up in the same neighborhood, but I'm a D.C. person. And my grandparents lived right near the White House during the Holocaust. And they would no sooner have gone to petition for their people, it would have been easier for them to build a spaceship in their backyard and fly to the moon. It was so far from their imagination to use their voice. And we've come so far, and that's a great thing, but we've reached a point of political empowerment where we have an impulse to litigate our differences in the political arena. You know, I have a colleague on Capitol Hill who says, why are you making us the Sanhedrin? Yes, someone on Capitol Hill is using the word Sanhedrin to say, why do you guys litigate things that you haven't solved on the floor of the House of Representatives? Because the debates hurt politicians because they are weaponized by bad actors, not necessarily in the Jewish community. But of course, in both parties, there is a war room saying, how can we use X, Y, or Z social issue to hurt the other side? So when I see something brought to Congress that is not solving a problem, I wonder if this is one of those moments when we should pause and ask whether we're using our power responsibly. One of the most amazing classroom situations I've ever found myself in was I had the honor of teaching a class on Capitol Hill a little over a year ago to a group of congressmen, Jewish American congressmen and women. And the class weirdly took place the afternoon when the Senate was voting on President Trump's first impeachment. So these members of Congress actually had nothing to do because none of them were senators and they were just waiting around for the vote. So they actually came to study Torah in one of these classrooms. And the question I asked at the beginning of these Jewish American members of Congress was, is America home? Is this homeland? Are we here? And right away, (laughs) two different congressmen across the table, one of them said, no, we're as vulnerable here as we have ever been. And our job is to remain vigilant at all times. And I'll never forget across the room, one of the other members of Congress yells at him and he's like, look where you are. <laughs> You're actually a member of Congress of the United States House of Representatives. So there's something very deep that's not just Congress saying to the Jewish community, don't make us litigate your disputes, but also even within the halls of power where Jews have power, that big question of when do you feel safe and when do you continue to feel vulnerable continues to be litigated. There are many, many evenings after a long day that maybe involve tears or stress or tensions. I've had many end of the days in the Capitol watching debates unfold and wishing we could harmonize more in Congress. I'll just say 
at the end of the debate about the resolution sanctioning Ilhan Omar that started as a resolution against anti-Semitism, it was broadened into what I think was not just the most powerful statement in the history of Congress against anti-Semitism, but it also condemned bigotry of all forms. Not everyone thought that was a good thing I did. And there was a Jewish member of Congress who struggled with whether to vote for that resolution. And I had the occasion, try to work at a museum before you die because you can walk around for two hours in a dark building on an evening after it's closed with a member of Congress. And I said to this member, I'm glad you voted for that resolution and I understand your struggle. And the reason I understand your struggle is because I was in Durban and I know what it's like to hear your peers and your colleagues say things that are anti-Semitic that you never thought you would hear. I know you've heard things that you can't unhear, but you did the right thing at the end of the day, in my view, because I came back from Durban and I rebuilt relationships and I used that trauma to do the hard work of letting my colleagues in the civil rights movement and the human rights movement understand my pain and still sitting next to them to fight what was causing them pain. Yeah, the very distinction between education, advocacy, and relationship building, which you're characterizing as something that's very close to my heart, and the business of education and relationship building as different from public policy, but actually swimming in the same world feels critical. So the last thing, Liz, if you're in charge of the Jewish community's approach towards anti-Semitism, moving off of the definition, what are the key agenda items for what we as a community should be doing different and better, not just in fighting against anti-Semitism, but in conducting this conversation internally about our fears? Well, I think that there's no question that there is a long list of actions that government should take. And some of them involve using a definition as a supporting tool. But I believe the proponents of IRA who say the definition is not an end in itself. Police reporting in the United States, we know that every year the FBI gathers data on hate crimes and more than half of all hate crimes committed because of the victim's religion are committed against Jews. But that reporting is optional and most police departments don't send information or they report zero hate crimes in a city where it couldn't possibly be true. So there's a lot of work to be done. Members of Congress should be holding government agencies accountable for their obligation to implement existing laws. There is a problem of anti-Semitism on the right and on the left, and we should all be using the relationships we have to not just call it out, but to root it out through relationships and engagement. I think as Jews and as people of integrity, I love the Jewish community. It's my beloved community. But we need to remember that when John Lewis said beloved community, that sense of beloved community encompassed his forgiving a police officer who beat his head to a bloody pulp when he tried to sit in a whites only waiting room in a bus station. And we have to understand that all of the Jewish organizations and activists who are engaging in this debate over the definition, they are good people. Their motive is to fight anti-Semitism while protecting free speech, all of them. They may draw the line in different places. But I was enriched as a Jewish community professional from talking to BDS supporters who were trying to understand this definition. And it may sound very trivial, 
but we need to see in each other the good. Many of us have children who have joined, if not now, or movements that we ourselves don't identify with. They are our children, they are Jews, and they are Jews who care. So I think that we need to understand more deeply the fear that drives us, the polarization that's taking over this debate. An organization that I was helping talk about anti-Semitism in January, we were struggling with how do you talk about anti-Semitism? Do you call out the Capitol attackers or do you not? And I was trying to help, and it's an organization that's very, very supportive of the IRA definition. And I sent the examples of the IRA definition that cover violent extremists on the right. And when I sent it to this group of professionals, they said, Stacy, what is this missive you're sending me? It's because they are good people, but they had focused so much on the six definition examples that are about Israel. They had not even read the five that talk about extremism on the right. You know, some people say, Ira doesn't talk about extremism on the right. It may be insufficient for the times we're in, but it does. I think we have to really open our hearts really understand that whether you are a BDS supporting Jew, whether you are a Jew who has a different interpretation of whether BDS is anti-Semitic on its face, whether there should be protected hate speech, we are all people who are targets of anti-Semitism. We are trying to do something good and we should stick together with each other against those bad political actors who are using us to distract us, and they're distracting us from a very urgent task that we have. I appreciate ending there. One of the things that I feel like I have learned a lot in the last 10 years has been to resist the instinct to falsify other people's fears. I started with the David Hartman quote, and Hartman himself, and I think our institute also, even as an institute that has been much more invested in the covenant question than the crisis question, has learned over time to not allow a fear of the crisis narrative to mitigate the importance of the crisis narrative, whether it's something you believe in instinctively, whether the things that scare other Jews are the things that scare you, there's very little that's gained and a lot it's lost when we actually falsify each other's fears. So thanks so much, Stacey Burdett, for being with us this week and for this conversation. This is a hard topic. I know that you're dealing with this and working with it every day and trying to make change, and you have my personal gratitude as well. And thanks to all of you for listening to our show. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon, with research support from Sam Hainback and assistance from Miri Miller, and music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. You can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and thanks for listening.